this is a podcast that we are following up from the other podcast to get uh, get Jeff Brown still. And also Abe gets to do some fancy editing because I never stopped my recording, but he... <laughs> he might have stopped the other one. So, oh, uh, yeah, we're at timestamp 50, 57 minutes on mine right now. We're probably at 56 when we stopped before, right. but well, we'll that, figure it out. That's easy enough. Yeah, make a note. Make a note. We're real pros over here. So, we're 500 shows in and we still haven't figured it out. Wow. Um, 500 so, shows yeah, we, we, yeah, it's been a lot of years of, of yammering about race cars, but. <laughs> um, so last, last show, we talked a bunch about kind of a peek behind the curtain of what it's like in IMSA and, and what it's been like. And, uh, yeah, you've, you've been to 33, 32, uh, Daytona 24s, which is amazing. Um, yeah. and, uh, just you know, I asked a bunch of, what's that? I said, just proves I'm old. Oh just no! It just guy. proves that you're uh, <laughs> pr- proves you're you must be good enough to go 33 times. <laughs> so, I guess uh, people I think, keep paying me to do it. So. Success more than a mark of age. But, <laughs> okay, um, we'll go with that. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people go once or twice, and that's all they get. But um, yeah, yeah, no, I'm so lucky. I, I, we we uh we, we've uh, we, we initially have have talked about uh about a lot of like big picture racing stuff but um years ago you did a famous podcast with Dinner with Racers Dinner with Racers and uh, and they talked a bunch about they did a whole separate show on the level 5 stuff I mm-hmm. talked to a bunch of buddies about hey what uh, if I, if I could uh, ask Jeff Brown something what would you want to hear about and I've got a whole list of of interesting stuff a bunch of them Good. are like more level 5 stories more level five stars and Abe wants more level okay. five stars. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. And you've also done everything from F or from, uh, from top fuel to IndyCar to, you know, all the different variations of IMSA and Ferrari mm-hmm. challenge and whatever. So, um, since the highest request is level five stories, um, I think right. maybe I'll give a quick intro of what level five was. It was a motorsports team funded by, um, Scott Tucker and, uh, and amongst other things, but mainly Scott Tucker, it was kind of like his, it was like his vacation. He got to go race at the highest level, correct? Right. But it was what he did for fun though. <laughs> it was right. He did not make his living. He spent his living on racing. Yeah. Um, like yeah. a lot of guys, you know, like it's kind of sports car racing, is that way it's a it's a sportsman's yeah. kind of class like uh I don't think especially in the past 30 cup. years right yeah. exactly exactly you know yeah. it's it's america's cup but cheaper you know it's with these guys mm-hmm. instead of having a second or third house and a big boat and uh whatever right. they go racing that's what they like to do and so yeah. scott was scott was kind of like you know, he was like that. He got hooked on on auto racing. And I think there's something uh, I've been fortunate to work for a lot of what, what we call sportsman drivers, you know, guys who didn't aren't professionals, but take it very professionally. And they're, you know, by definition, they had to have made some money somehow. And so they're successful at their business. And I think maybe some of that six, you know, the success they've kind of reached a level and their business runs kind of by itself and they need another challenge and, and racing draws a lot of those guys to it. Like this is really competitive and this is really hard and, and I'm going to have to work hard just like they did in their business 
to become a success. And, yeah. and so most of those sportsmen, gentlemen, drivers, and they're competitive, like sometimes maybe over the top competitive. And Scott, yeah, I, would, I was, would imagine, was that way. I mean, he, man, he worked. I've never had a driver who, a gentleman driver who worked harder at his driving craft and getting better at it than Scott. I mean, the guy was How, a maniac. And, and you said that was, uh, I think you, in the last show, you said it was like the third longest team you were ever at. Um, they were around for what, like 10 yeah. years? Uh, maybe not quite that long. I think more like six, maybe. Okay. Yeah. And it ended in 14, 10, five or six years, I think. Five or six years. Okay. Yeah. How did seem uh, like how did that, how did I you mean, get started with them? Um let's see, how did I get started? Okay, so the team was just kind of getting going. They were racing, they were gonna move up from Ferrari Challenge to Grand Am at the time, and they were gonna right. do the twenty four hours at Daytona, and they had bought cars, they had bought Riley. Uh, Daytona prototype cars from Bill Riley. Bill Riley and I have been friends for forever. And name drop. They, yeah, they <laughs> and Bill, you know, Bill's like, hey, uh, you know, they needed a race engineer, so Bill had bought these cars, uh, or had sold them these cars, and he knew that um, I was at Crone Racing, and they had kind of switched gears to a Lola. And I was no longer with Crone, and Bill said to the level five guys, hey, you should get Jeff to be the race engineer. And so that's pretty much how I started there. That, you know, I went and okay. started working with those guys in 2009, I guess it was. Yeah, I was going to say, it's got to be before 2010, yeah. Yep. 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 So started working with those guys, and um, – <clears throat> Man, well, I'm what back. was what was the the introductory discussions like? Like as as you were being introduced to the the program and the team, was there anything that stood out as being like, oh, this is just another you know like good gig, or was it like, oh, something about this is going to be really strange? Yeah, I hmm, that's that's good. I think maybe the strange part was part of it. Oh, this will be different and new but have but saying that these kind of race teams are all have some kind of unique thing to them brought on by right. whoever is funding it right so you know i just got done with crone racing which was funded by a texas oil man okay so that is definitely different than a team uh the team that i was with at team scandia that was funded by Bill Gates's personal investment banker, mm -hmm. you know, or the team, you know, so everybody kind of had a unique thing. So it yeah. wasn't like, Oh, I don't, I don't know. 
it, it, was it seems like, like the, it seems like some of the craziness about, about this you probably had no idea of because you didn't expect to run million dollar SCCA runoffs programs multiple times in a row, which is kind of like where where the insanity comes in. Like running a pro race team just costs a ton of money anyway. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Well, I guess the you know I looked at it and I was presented with okay, here's how we're going to do things. And the guy who who kind of ran the whole team for Scott Tucker was a guy by the name of David by the name of David Stone mm-hmm. who had another business with his brother Jeff called Kelly Moss and yeah up in Wisconsin right yep. in Wisconsin yep and so they're still yep. a current team running a lot of uh uh, Porsche Cup, and you know they're a, they're a top top team in yeah, still in racing. Pretty famous in the Porsche world as well for restorations and builds and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. And so they had a shop in yeah. Wisconsin, and and David Stone kind of left Jeff to run Kelly Moss, and David ran um, what became Level Five he for Scott, and so David got a hold of me through Bill Riley and we met and he kind of explained the program. And when you're a race engineer, I, I was being hired as at the time as a race engineer to kind of, you know, make the cars go fast. I wasn't in the business side of it or the marketing or the high level decisions. I was like, here's your car, here's your drivers, make these things go fast, call the right strategy and win the race. Right. And that was what yep. my position was. And so I look at those things and what's important to me are just only really a few things. How good is the crew, my crew guys? And I knew almost everybody, I've been in racing so long that I knew almost everybody on the crew and they were good guys. So I knew I was going to have top level mechanics who could build a good, reliable car and I could work with. Um, Drivers, they, it was kind of in the state of, flux, but I knew they had the budget and the desire to hire good, top quality, world-class drivers. Um, Budget, they had a budget. I could see what they were spending money on and what they were planning on spending money on. So I knew I wasn't going to be like, oh, you can't have an extra set of tires. We can't afford that. Yeah. And where's, where's my paycheck? Yeah. (laughs) Right. Right. That's important too. They were going to pay me. Right. And um, so it seemed like a really good starting team, you know, and, and because they had David Stone, you know, this wasn't some guy who didn't know what he was getting into. He had a guy who knew racing, you know, Scott Tucker had David Stone, and they, you know, he explained to him what this was going to be like, and Scott was willing to fund it. And so it was, you know, it was really like, yeah, great, let's go. And that was in. So what was, um, um, what was step number one? Like, okay, you're, you're in now. What happens next? Yeah. We're going to go test on Tuesday. See you there. Or like, how does that work? <laughs> yeah. So they had hired a guy, a, a, a British guy to be kind of technical director to head up over the race engineering part of it. And I was, we were going to run two cars at the 24 hours of Daytona, two Daytona prototypes. And this technical director was going to race engineer one and I was going to race mm-hmm. engineer the other. And he was going to be kind of head of all engineering on the team. Right. So they said, come to Fontana. We're doing a big test engine test. The, 
idea was Scott Tucker had been racing Ferrari Challenge the year before, and he was a big Ferrari guy. Just, you know, guys that are Porsche guys or they're Ferrari guys or Lamborghini guys, whatever right. your car is. And and Scott was or, a big or Honda guys. Honda guys are Honda guys. Too, right? Honda guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, I guess I should be with Colin's new job. I should be an Acura guy. Oh, there you so, go, there you go. I mean, I was talking about like Honda uh, Civics, but like. <laughs> okay, well, accurate GTP cars works too, but anyway, so. Too. <laughs> I know, I know, yeah. Actually, you probably yeah. have a lot more fun than most of us who get paid to do it. Yeah, um, well, so you're going, to find, you're going to Fontana to engine so test to Fontana, your, your new prototypes. Yeah. Right, and we're going to put a Ferrari in a Daytona prototype, which nobody had ever done before. And a there's this engine? guy, Steve, a Ferrari engine in a Daytona prototype. You know, you could run whatever BMWs and Fords and yeah, yeah. Buicks maybe. It's been a while. Anyway, you could run kind of whatever engine you wanted. Um, yeah, it was more of like a builder so, class prototype series back then. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, Riley had become the default chassis. It was the best. So everybody kind of to win, you had to have a Riley. So everybody had mm-hmm. that, but they were sticking different engines in it. And so Scott said, let's do a Ferrari. And um, Steve Dynan of the BMW fame, engine builder guy, yeah. uh, built some Ferraris. And they oh, were in geez. the cars. And, and so I showed up as just kind of like, hey, what is this? And was looking around, and we had these Ferraris in there. And... They were, we struggled and struggled and struggled, not because of Steve's inability to make it go, but there were part struggles. You can't just buy, Ferrari was kind of restrictive on what parts they would sell you because they didn't really want guys hot rodding Ferraris and building their own and stuff. So, so we, we blew a bunch of them up at. Fontana. I'll bet. And bet. yeah. Do you, do you know what engine it was, it was? Was it out of like a four five eight or what kind of engine was it? Yeah, it would have been maybe like back then like the hottest are... Ferrari, I think, was a four five eight Ferrari. But... Yeah, would it have been a four five eight or a four thirty? I can't remember. Whatever it, it was yeah. the it was whichever the latest one of that that era okay. was. I can't remember yeah. when the four five eight came out, but it was that engine, right? It wasn't like a 308 from you know the 70s or whatever it was the current yeah, gt i think 09 2010 i think the 458 it was like also like the first reliable generation of ferrari where it was like oh you don't have to take the engine out every ten thousand miles kind of thing right so, right right yeah. so it was that it was that right. and so we we bailed on that so i went to that test and uh, the engine the decision was made yep we got to shelve that Daytona's. That must have sounded great, though. Well, wait. What what was the what was the nature of the test? You said you went through a lot of engines, but like uh, in a road car, these engines will last a while. They won't just like they don't just spontaneously fail that often. So, like, how do you know you need to change the program after that test? And Fontana is pretty similar to Daytona ish. Like they're kind of comparable tracks. Yeah. Right, and we kind of ran the infield like that in the banking, so we could get some long wide open throttle right i mean to be real honest with the it wasn't hard to figure it out because it would go along for 45 minutes and then kaboom and fire would shoot out of it and it would roll to the 
to, so, to like, stop. I mean, I know that you're in preparation for a 24 hour race, but like the, the, the testing in this example is like, you're, you're testing for hours at a time over the course of a weekend. And when you have a failure, you just have to regroup and, you know, throw in another engine and start again. Exactly. Exactly what we oh. did. You know, it yeah. was, it was, I don't remember how many engines we went through. It's, it's been a while, but we went through three or four and, and Steve Diner was there with his guys and it was, and Steve, they were working their tail off and, that's I mean, an expensive basic weekend. thing is, Ugh. yeah. <laughs> if Steve Dynan can't solve it, it's not going to be solved anytime soon. And it was just a whatever a parts thing or whatever. And mm-hmm. and so we, the good thing is they had a backup plan. And I didn't know all of this when I showed up, but the backup plan LS was, motors. I <laughs> know uh, BMW. The BMW yeah. motor was a pretty good motor, and Steve built those, okay. and they were super reliable. So they yeah. were trying to make this Ferrari thing work, and I was there watching and seeing how it was going on and trying to lend a little bit of a hand, but I was just more observing at the time. And then that test ended, I flew back December 24th. So it was like the 21st, 22nd, 23rd of December. And the that is back bef- when the roar was always the first weekend of January. So we had like a weekend a week and they the guys put the bmws back in and we showed up at daytona with the bmws in and ran what i would call a conventional um a conventional car for the for the 24 hours of daytona what engine was that that was a bmw v8 whatever whatever the BMW, current BMW was at the time. And there was other Daytona yeah. prototypes running that same engine that Steve Dynan built. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that would have been like the, um, the V8 M3 engine, maybe? I, th- I think it was a variant of that, yeah. It's, yeah. This is like when I, this, this time frame is when I got kind of a little bit interested in pro racing. Like we were hosting events and stuff, and I was dirtbagging with a Honda. But like pro racing had started to become accessible on the internet, so I was starting to watch it. But uh, yeah, I think okay. it was like a like a, a like a V8 M3 style engine. It, had, it involved a lot of OEM parts, though. I know that. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah, it did. It, it was super reliable, which was really good for yeah. Daytona, obviously. <clears throat> yeah. So we did did that, and I ran one of the cars. This Brit, Brit, British guy ran the other car. Um, after. And I had had some really good success with Crone in the Daytona prototype. So I kind of knew the car. I knew the Riley car really well. And all of right, right. And this British guy had come out of Formula One. And he was, um, he just didn't quite get the whole American endurance racing thing. You can imagine the culture shock from being a Formula One engineer. And suddenly he's at Daytona, never done an endurance race before and freezing and you know, you're in the garage area, and it's it's definitely not Formula One. Yeah, they <clears> let, so the, they the, let race, the fans semi close to you. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and those so, dirtbag Americans. Right, right. I remember yeah. one of our conversations, and this guy was a really good guy. I really like him. We're still friends and everything. But he was he, when we first started. He said, "Okay, so." As technical director, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to change stocks and springs and anti-roll bar. 
all we're going to do to tune our cars is move weight distribution. And I was like, hmm, all right, that's all we're going to do. And I had been running Daytona prototypes for five or six years. And <laughs> I was, I, I'm not saying I was an expert, but to weight distribution yeah. was not going to hack it. I knew that. Yeah, and that's so, like, it's like uh, in, our, in our world, it's like taking a Time Attack S2000 and being like, well, we're just going to adjust tire pressures. We're, it's, good, right. it's good enough. We're only playing with tires. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. It's, that wasn't going to happen. So I said, oh, yeah, well, all right. And then I started working on my car with my guys, and he was working on his car. And not a surprise. Again, it wasn't that I was anything brilliant, but my car was quite a bit faster than the other car. And, you know, Friday night before the race, they took my setup and put it on the other car and went away. Right. And we both ran the same setup. And we did, I'm trying to think how we did. There was a movie about this. If people want to look it up, it was on Discovery Channel and it was about this race. Um, what was it called? I can't remember, but it was. Oh, I vaguely remember this. Yeah. Yeah. It was about this race at Daytona with level five. I was running one car, the other guy running the other. Um, I can't remember. There was some kind of catchy name. I, but it was on Discovery Channel, and it was a documentary about it. And I think we, we might have finished third. I can't remember. We did okay. Anyway, at the end of the race, the guy who was the technical director is like, yeah, no, this is not for me. Jeff, if you want this job, I'll go back to England and do my thing. Um, he had gotten a job doing some big technical consulting for the Olympics that were coming to London at the time. So he took that job, and that's how I became technical director at, at um, Level 5 on after the first race that I had done with him. Interesting. I gotta find. I gotta figure out what this documentary is. Um, yeah, the, I don't know. Uh, oh, I think that's it. I think that's it. So yep. the uh, the yep. URL for DaytonaDream.com has since expired, but maybe maybe mm. we can maybe we can find it. Yeah, something. I think it would be online, maybe YouTube or something. I don't know. So level five also ran all kinds of other stuff throughout the years. Um, what were the other programs that, uh, that came and went besides what we'll get to eventually, which is the crazy SCCA runoffs programs. But. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Scott Tucker was super committed to being the best race car driver he could be. And, you know, he knew he wasn't going to be a world-class driver. He didn't start out racing go-karts when he was four, like most world-class drivers of today had done. So his idea was, I'll just drive everything I can all the time as much as I can. <clears throat> and so we ran, um, we ran the, and this is when IMSA, it was called ALMS at the time, when the American Le Mans Series and Grand Am were still split, kind of like the old cart IRL split in open mm -hmm. road racing. And so we had Grand Am program for Daytona, but at Sebring, right. you couldn't run the Daytona prototypes. You had to run a different kind of car. Right. And so that was when the um, start, that's when ALMS was kind of, there weren't very many prototypes. There was LMP1. And there was a couple of those around the muscle milk car, the Dyson car, a couple of those. That's about it. LMP2 had, was kind of on its 
coming back a little bit after Penske had pulled out with the Porsche Spiders. There were the Honda, the ARXs coming back in. Fernandez had one. I think Andretti might have had one. They were starting to come back, but only a couple. And, and ALMS needed more prototypes. So they brought in the LMPC class, um, which were open cockpit Oricas with um, LS Chevy engines in them. Super mm-hmm. great class, spec class. And so Level 5 decided to get a couple of those, and we ran those in ALMS. ALMS also had a, had a support class called, what was it called at the time? IMSA lights, mm-hmm. which were little prototypes kind of based off of an SCCA C-Sports racer kind of thing. But um, they it, it, it evolved over the years, but it was little small prototypes. Um, yeah, like stores kind of like a, and wests and stuff? or Store, west, and then panels built a car. DPO1 yep, yep. was a car yep. that panels built. And I don't remember how the rules exactly evolved, but it was, think radicals, but you couldn't run a radical. (laughs) It was kind of like that that performance level. And so Scott's like, well, let's get one of those. We'll run the support events on Friday and Saturday and then run the big race on on Sunday. So we ran the lights. Yep. And then he was like, well, you know. They also have this Porsche Cup class that is a support class. Let's get one of those, too, and I'll do that. And so he was running everything, including Ferrari Challenge. I mean, that's wild. I I know we ran. I remember Road America one year on one weekend. He ran IMSA Lights. He ran SCCA Trans Am in a Ferrari that we had made into a Trans Am 2 car or something at the time. He mm-hmm. ran Porsche Cup. He ran the LMP2 car and something else. It seemed like he ran five cars that weekend, at least four, maybe even five cars that weekend in five different categories. Um, That's because, impressive. It's actually like really impressive. <laughs> The guy was a machine. I mean, he would, I'd call him, talk to him on the phone, and I would say 90% of the time, whenever I called him, he was on a stationary bike doing 30, 40, 50, 60 miles a day on his stationary bike mm-hmm. and conducting business at the same time. I mean, he worked hard at it, and he studied. Wow. And he, he, he was super committed. And the reason he ran so many cars is because he was like, the only way I'm going to get better is I got to drive more cars. I got to do more laps. I got to practice more. And so mm-hmm. he was just all in. And we had a big, big program to, you know, to support all of those, all of those cars. Right. And at the same time, we were running at the highest level, you know, going to Lamar and all of that. Right. In a program like that, is there a lot of outside sponsorship also? Do you have a whole team going after, you know, Muscle Milk and, you know, all the other companies that, like, might have, you know, like, uh, Conica, Minolta, all these kind of things. Like, are you going after stuff like that, or is this just Level 5? I think that depends on the individual team owner. Um, there I mean, was in, in, this, in this particular case, like in Level 5's case, is that, uh, like, how no, was that? No, that was... There, there, 
you know, there was some, there was times when we had um, Microsoft on the side of the car. Uh, there was, we did some work with Microsoft. <clears throat> Scott's business had, was very computer intensive. Uh, a lot okay. of algorithms and things like that. So I, uh, now I'm just guessing, but Microsoft showed up on the car and I got a feeling that Scott was a pretty good client of Microsoft. Um, and so there might've been some trade out, you know, like, uh, you know, a little bit of sponsorship for all the money that he was spending on his computer stuff. Again, I'm just, I'm just guessing here right. now, but you know, that showed up primarily yeah. it was yeah. Scott. He, he was, he was paying for it. There was some, there was Alpine, the watch company, Al, mm -hmm. Alpine, Alpine. Yeah, I guess that's who it was. Yeah. Anyway, they were on there for a little bit and I don't know what the deals were. Scott definitely had a couple people out, you know, he would much rather somebody else pay for it than him if he could oh, yeah, make that happen. Yeah. So, so there were people out there looking for it, but primarily it was funded by Scott. Okay. I kind of, I mean, you get that when you look back through the history of the, of level five, like you do, and many other teams, like you get the history, you get the impression that that's kind of how it is, but, um, but yeah. everybody always wants to try to get that big brand sponsor that, uh, that name on the side of the car. Cause that's, that's also like a big piece of racing, which is, you know, cool, but also helps pay the bills. But, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So what, it was, uh, what what got him what got him deep into SCCA stuff? Did he come up through that or no? Yes, and that, and that's kind of what what brought upon the whole SCCA runoff programs because it wasn't yeah. just that what? esports racer. <clears throat> he wanted he, to dominate uh, where he came up from. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people think that that was some kind of big ego thing like i'm a big guy and i'm gonna go crush all these little amateur guys <laughs> yeah and, and, and scott didn't really see it that way he he started well, it's still in, racing it's still racing obviously right think think of a guy who doesn't really you know you guys don't count because you know about racing but think of a guy who whatever and i don't know how scott actually got started but on, on like day one went to a skip barber school because he got a gift uh from his wife to go do it once I, i'm not sure but but you started like that right and then you go through SCCA and you get your regional license your novice license your regional license and you get your national license and then he moved on from there <clears throat> never went to the runoff but at, there was one point in scott's career where winning the runoff would be like my god if i could ever win the runoff that would be like phew. Someday, oh, maybe yeah. I can get good enough to win the runoff. Well, he kind of leapfrogged that, boom, 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 in a hurry. And suddenly he found himself, you know, at Lamar. And, and he hadn't won the runoffs yet. <laughs> and he hadn't, exactly. He hadn't won the runoffs yeah, yet. Yeah, I get that. Like, I get that. Man, I really like to win the runoff. I, I wonder if I could do that. And we're, we're all like, yeah. Do you really, is that what you really want to do? You want to win the I mean, it's it's still runoffs. like the biggest sprint race in the maybe on the planet uh, is the runoffs. Like, there's more people that attend the runoffs than go to any other race. So, hey, yeah, it's I, a big I've deal. Many, so. I've told many people. You know, I've been fortunate enough to win Daytona a couple times, win Sebring seven or eight times, and all of that. I've won the runoffs. Well, I can say three times now because my guy won it again this year. 
but in all my racing oh, cool. history, I've cool. only won the runoffs three times. And what what, uh, what car his, was this year? It was uh, John Guyon in the Prototype Two class. Okay. Yeah. P two. Yep. 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 P two. So Colin and I have been helping those guys out for a couple of years, and and uh, they won in the rain at VIR, which is pretty cool to see. So yeah. that yeah. runoffs thing is hard to win. I mean, I have great admiration for anybody that has ever won the runoff. It is. Whew, that is because yeah, it's if, you know for people who don't know who don't follow SCCA, basically it's a single it's a single race to win the championship. So like you could do your Texas region or your Chicago region or your Atlanta region or whatever one of the there's a ton of regions cross country. You could do two or three or four every year. The requirements change a little bit, but usually you do two or three or four races in your general area, or you do a majors race or used to be a nationals race. Like you do three of those anywhere in the country and that qualifies you. And then like the big of like the biggest ones, there've been, there've been almost a thousand racers at the runoffs before, like at Indianapolis VIR is usually in the 600 range. Like there's a lot of cars there. Um, And it's all the classes and each class typically races by itself too, which is, it's no mixed class stuff. It's like a single race to win it all. So for listeners who don't know what that is, but uh, it's definitely hard to win, especially because nobody's coming there. Like you're, you're racing against the best of the best with your particular type of car. Right. And, and it's, and it's a one shot deal. It's not like, Oh man, yeah. had a bad race. Well, we'll make it up next weekend in the points championship. I mean, yeah, that yeah. road road America races uh, when we were doing that with level five, they were 13 laps. That's it. Yep. One mistake. And you are not, the national champion. And so yeah, a bu- I, buddy of ours, who has been on the show a bunch. He he's lost the runoffs, Mike Taylor. He's lost the runoffs by cutting a tire. Like you cut a tire, yeah. something goes wrong. Like it's over. Like you don't get to win. So, yeah. Yep. Good friend of mine back in years, not well, 10, maybe 15 years ago was one of the top <clears throat> spec Miata guys. And he would go to the runoffs and there would be 85 spec Miatas on the track. Oh yeah. You know, Insanity. Hard, hard. So anyway, Scott Scott never really looked at it as let's go beat up on the amateur guys. He was like, man, you know, I've done some stuff, but uh, who cares about that? I've never won the runoffs yet. I'm still not <laughs> accomplished. And so that's what kind of spurred the whole let's go to the runoffs with the crazy Porsche and the crazy prototype and all of that. And unlike your pro racing, which is largely like, here's the car you can run and you can set it up really well. Like what we've talked about for the last hour and a half, like this is, <laughs> uh, unless you're in spec Miata, spec racer Ford, um, or a couple other classes with like spec lines, like you, there's still a lot of creativity and freedom, especially in the classes that you built those cars for, which, which at the time was D sports racer. And what was the course was that STO? STO, yeah, I, you rem- yeah, I yeah. forgot what that. Yeah, so that Porsche, that thing was crazy. It's a four-wheel drive, twin turbo, intercooled. Nine nine six twin turbo, yeah, a crazy car. Yeah, yeah. nine nine six twin turbo, four-wheel drive, intercooled with alcohol injection spray on the intercooler to get it even colder. Water-cooled brakes. Yeah, we had water-cooled brakes on it, and it had to run on a DOT tire. Like a Hoosier DOT kind of thing? <laughs> yeah, you know, like a, it had a DOT. It couldn't be a race tire. 
Yeah, um, uh, well, D- we, the DOT Hoosiers are like as close as you get, but it's definitely not like a full non-DOT slick, not like a Michelin, not the stuff you're used to running in in IMSA for sure. Yeah, right. Um, right. I the, mean, we, like we, the, we, that that car. What year was that? Was like 10, 11, something like that. 12, 10, 11, 12? That would have been twelve, I think, when we did the. Prototype I was I was at the, the twelve festival. runoffs, and I I remember seeing it, and I remember seeing the compound mm-hmm. you guys had. And I remember being like, what in the, what is that? <laughs> right. Um, that how, whole how area. That, in, how, like, how did that car get chosen? Like, how did, uh, where'd that come from? That was, um, I think we talked a little bit about the Kelly Moss thing with uh, David Stone and Kelly Moss. So that was a, hey, Scott, if you want to, uh, you know, we'll do that prototype. That's cool. Let's do that. But if you want another class, we can build this killer, insane Porsche and the Kelly Moss guys. David and Jeff Stone knew what they were doing with that. And they, and so right. like, yeah, okay, let's do that too. And so David and Jeff kind of built that car. I helped a little bit. I, once it was built, I helped race engineer it. And we got Pat mm-hmm. Long to come and do all the test driving. Crazy. Talk to, talk to Pat about it sometime. I think, you know, he's done a lot of crazy things, Pat Long, and a lot of fast things. But uh, going going down the back straightaway into or the yeah back straight away into turn five at road america on a dot tire with a mm-hmm. thousand horsepower or whatever that was he, he, uh, i bet that ranks in the top two or three scariest things he's ever done at least he told oh, me yeah it's gonna be like, moving down the hill too. Yeah. this is crazy <laughs> that, that car was named trick shocks on there. Right? yep yep we named it the hurricane yeah. because the car that we got the donor car had this, it was a white car with this blue kind of hurricane swirl on it when we got it. And so everybody said, oh, that's the hurricane. It's over in the corner. So mm-hmm. it became the hurricane. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, heard was, you, I heard you talking a little bit about the shocks on that car. Were those, yeah. were those G-valve shocks? Yeah. Well, you're, you remember. Yeah, exactly. It was... It was so I did a bunch of research cool on that stuff and like G valves and inerters and there's like a ton of, they're different styles, but there's like a ton of lack of info on this stuff. Um, okay. That stuff intrigued me. You, you mentioned it for like 10 seconds on uh, dinner with racers. I got to know a little more about that. Okay. A G valve shock. It was uh, dynamic dampers, which is a company owned by Multimatic and um some brilliant guys all headed up by Larry Holt, but there's a, their, their shock expert guy is this guy, JF. And I've known, known, knew him for a long time. So when the hurricane got going, I'm like, okay, here we are with this, you know, typical Porsche engine, definitely in the wrong place, but we can't change that. So very I know what yep. we're going to, yeah, right. Behind the rear axle wrong. And, so we're going to have to deal with this. And I knew, I knew what we were going to be up against, you know, especially with all this horsepower. You just think of going into turn five at Road America and you put the brakes on. The front dives down, the rear picks up. they got this big mass in the back and the thing's just going to want to swap ends. Yeah, pendulum. So, yeah, yep. So how are we going to prevent this? And as you said, the cool thing, you know, normally you're in whatever, Porsche Carrera Cup you run the shocks that come on it and that's what you got and you can't change them. This class was pretty much wide open. So I talked to JF about the shock program and he's like, well, we got these G valve things and they're kind of experimental, but let's try it. So what it, the best way I can describe it is 
G stands for G's, as in G-force. And mm -hmm. so it had us, it had a, it was not electronic in any way. It had a mechanical weight on like a pendulum. If you would think of a, uh, it had a little box and like mounted on, on the shock or on the reservoir. On the shock. Yep. On the shock yeah. and oil came from the shock through this little box. And if you picture a, uh, a one inch pendulum that's pinned at the top and there's a weight at the bottom and it mm -hmm. hangs straight down. Right. And then on either side of that weight are two holes where the oil flows through. So if the weight is just hanging straight down, as the shock compresses, the oil flows through one of those holes around the pendulum through the other hole and back into the shock. And it's just right. like a normal shock, but you mount this pendulum box such that when you put the brakes on the pendulum swings, it, it swings, forward. right? So the car, yep. right. It swings forward and it blocks one it of keeps those the holes. back of the car down and yeah, let's, exactly. let's the car do the right thing. So, yeah. So you put them on reverse front to rear so that when you put the brakes on, it basically makes the front shock super stiff because it blocks the hole so the shock can't yep. compress as much. And on the so rear, it's compression you put it the is keeping way. the front end up. Yep. Right. And on the rear, you mount it the other way so that it blocks the rebound hole so the shock can't extend as easily. So it keeps the car really flat. But yet... Once it's all settled down and you're now cornering, the pendulums are centered again and the shock works well over the bumps and the curves and like you want it to. Yeah. So the G valves. In, in this, in, yeah, in this class, was there the like a la you, you weren't allowed to have electronic uh, control on the shocks or anything, I imagine? Or No, there was no electronic control. It had to be regular hydraulic dampers. Yeah. Regular, yeah. quote, regular. <laughs> That's, uh, I mean, that's one way to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it worked. It was fantastic. They really, yeah. really worked well. I could, I could barely find anything about. I mean, I, I had, I had the concept of like what this was, but I could barely find anything about these things. Were these common anywhere else? No, I think it was something that Dynamic Multimatic had invented, um, and I don't know where that got quickly banned in most Everywhere. classes <laughs> this the same way the hydraulic third spring that i did back in the wow 90s i guess um that penske developed that i helped penske develop those got banned also all right let's just let's like now about that what's that <laughs> sidebar okay sidebar <laughs> yeah sidebar hydraulic um, third spring <laughs> hydraulic third spring so nowadays a third spring is pretty common in indie cars and, and, and prototypes. Um, yeah. Like the third element shock and spring combo in between the other ones up top. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know what yeah. I'm talking about? And for everybody that uh, might not, you'd have your normal four springs and the, the, what we call the heave rate, which is the vertical spring rate of the car. Like if you were to stand mm -hmm. on your car, it would squish down. Right. That's controlled yeah. by those two corner springs. But yeah. as you go through a corner and the car rolls, those springs also control how much it rolls. Race engineers would love to split that up so that you could have nice soft springs in roll to make a lot of grip, but stiff springs in 
the vertical movement or the heave movement to control the ride heights of your aerodynamic platform. Right. So the third spring just does, does just that. It decouples the roll rate from the ride rate. And through a mechanical linkage on the rockers. So yeah, so, yeah. Google third element uh, suspension exactly. or something like that. You you can kind of, and they're they're usually on like open wheel stuff. Where if somebody takes the chassis off their Pikes Peak car, they're really common in like Pikes Peak prototype car car stuff. Um, yep. And that's just because you need you need to have big arrow, but it can't push the car to the ground because there's five inch gaps somewhere. You know, like you need you need to be able to have some ride height. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's just like a, it, it prevents the shocks from being that, that, uh, that exactly. thing that takes up all the up and down with the arrow. Yeah. If, if, if people really want to look at the, where they're out in the open, look at an LMP3 car, a Ligier, just Google Ligier LMP3 suspension, and you'll see a third spring in the front and one in the back. And it'll actually be like a spring or an element with bumper rubbers in there. And it's, it allows you to get that stiff heave rate without being stiff and roll. Because you don't want to be stiff and roll because it just makes the tire, it loads, overloads the tire and slides the tire and you lose grip. So, uh, Jeff, at the, at the risk of sounding stupid, I want to ask you about Liget's. Because I heard a story yep. about Liget uh, as, as someone of someone that I know has one. And what I had mm -hmm. heard from uh, multiple parties was that you should never use the reverse gear in one of those engines or one of those transmissions. Is that, does that story ring a bell? In, in a P3 car? Uh, in a P3 Liget? Well, I, the story I heard was that in in this particular configuration, the the reverse gear in in its transmission um, yep. had like a fifty percent probability of failure or something like that. It, it's like it's yeah. there because it has to be there, but it might blow up half the time. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So yeah. um, we don't don't forget to get back to the the hydraulic springs. The hydraulic third spring. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. The yeah. reverse gear. I will say. That's actually fairly common, even today. Um, in racing the, transmissions, the very, like a, like a, yeah. In a prototype, yeah, the very, very fragile reverse gears. The rules require you to have a reverse gear, so the the manufacturers put them in, like X Track or Hewland. They they put a rear gear in because you have to have one. And to be fair, you know, without a reverse gear. You know, we've all watched an IMSA race. You go off and you're nosed into the tire wall. If you didn't have reverse gear, you're kind of done. So you want a reverse gear, but they make it right. as light and little as possible. So the theory is if you're nosed into the tire wall, you're already kind of screwed. If it takes an extra two seconds to gingerly put it in reverse and then out and don't give it a lot of gas, it's probably a good trade-off. And so, <laughs> so you know, that's pretty much the way it is. A, P, a current P3 car, whenever our, our drivers would spin this last year, last couple of years, it would be like, okay, nice and easy on reverse. Just, you know, let the revs drop down before you click it in reverse. Don't, you know, rev the engine, ring, 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 clink, because it'll just blow yeah, reverse yeah. gear out of it. And that's, <laughs> that's crazy. And that's, 
that's just not the Legiates, you know, the, the, the Canes have the same thing that, because they all have the same gearbox. It's an extract gearbox or a human gearbox. And really, if you didn't have that, we'd be sitting here and complaining, man, that gearbox is too heavy. The reverse gear is just this big, robust thing that why do you need that? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a waste it's two extra weight. pounds. What the F? <laughs> right, right. What do we need that for? Yeah. All right, so we're going to take a yeah. step back from our sidebar sidebar to go back to the sidebar, which is the, the real sidebar. Third spring. Hydraulic third spring. So back in, I'm trying to think, 94, 94, 94, 95. I was running Ferrari 333 SP, which is a open cockpit V12 five valve engine prototype. Pretty cool. Uh, you know, if anybody hasn't seen one, go go on YouTube and just listen to it. It's a fantastic car. So anyways, running one of those, a normal four spring car back in 94, 95, nobody had really done third springs. Third Springs were just starting to come into IndyCar. And I was at a team called Team Scandia, and we were running IndyCars and sports cars and Top Fuel and ARCA and lots of other things. But, and part of the job was to kind of take what we had learned at, in all of those, as technical director, in all of those different aspects of our racing and apply it. Well, the Third Spring worked really good on the IndyCar. And I was like, how can we do that on the sports car? And the Lola and Reynard had built the Indy cars with third springs, mechanical linkage third springs, where you have to design the car basically that way with the suspension and mounting points into the tub to take the spring and take the loads of the spring. You couldn't just like buy one and bolt it on a car that wasn't designed that way. So I came up with this idea that maybe we could use the stock absorbers to do a third spring. And so here was my idea. As the car is going down the straightaway, the aerodynamic load is pushing down on the shocks, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the pistons are being compressed and the oil that is in the shock is being pushed out of the shock into the remote reservoirs of the shock. Well, what happens if I took the remote reservoirs off and put one big remote reservoir and tie both a, of those shock hoses yeah. into this remote reservoir. Put a piston a in this piston. remote. Yeah. Exactly. And then put a spring <laughs> behind that piston. So that when what would both happen? Shocks, that sounds crazy. Well, so I'm in my shop and I was I had my shock dyno and I was super into shocks at the time. And I was one of the few guys who had a shock dyno back in the nineties. I bought the second shock dyno that Kurt Rorig, who's the top shock building guy had ever built. I bought it from Kurt, got it in my shop. So I'm playing with this stuff. And that's I that's like kinda... the name Brandon shock dynos too. If you look like it at, at any, you look the Google image shock dyno and that's like the one that comes up. That's amazing. The one to have, right, yeah. right. So I bought yeah. dyno number two from Kurt. And was doing a lot of shock, doing a lots of shock work for a lot of lot of teams and stuff, and and so I could test all this stuff. So I built, you know, I got a, I got some parts, and you know, it wasn't Home Depot at the time, but I had my lathe and my mill, and I machined up some of this stuff, and I built a little reservoir like that and tied my shocks into that thing. And so when both shocks were being compressed, the fluid would flow out through this little valve into 
the central reservoir and push on that spring. I'm like, wow, okay, I got a third spring. And in roll, in roll, the outside shock is being compressed and the inside shock is extending. So the fluid would roll, would push out of the outside shock toward this reservoir. But since the inside shock was extending, the fluid would just go over to the inside shock. So I didn't have, so it decoupled roll mm-hmm. and heave. Yeah. So I built yeah. this thing. We put it on the 333. It was, yeah, it took some while. I had some little needle valves in there so I could adjust how big the orifices were to let the fluid pass where I wanted it to pass. And ultimately. So you actually put this on the 333 SP. Yes. Yeah. Well, we went cool. to Rhode Atlanta. Right out of my shop, we put it on the 333. I had Fermin Velez and Michaela Alvarado driving, and Marlon Baldi. (laughs) Yeah, and we just and they were like, "Yeah, this is this seems to work." And so it was working. What it let us do was lower the car almost 10 millimeters. Mm -hmm. Holy cow! In on an aero car is like huge. It just made way more downforce. Yeah, because if we didn't have this the car would touch the ground on the straightaways, you know, bottom on the straightaways. Right. So this made it stiffer on the straightaways so the car wouldn't bottom, so I could lower the car. So in the slower corners, the car would be right on the ground, where before the car was off the ground in the slow corners because I had to raise it up so it didn't hit the ground on the straightaways. So I kind of built this thing, and and it it worked good. We were really happy about it. That was kind of toward the end of the year. And I then I go that year, and it was just what I could build in my shop. I'm not, you know, I'm not a machinist or anything, but it worked. So we were going to, I was going to start on version two. So I went to the PRI show that year. And um, as always, Penske Shocks had their booth, and I'd known the guy who, basically started Penske Shocks, a guy by the name of Jeff Ryan. Mm-hmm. And he he's the smartest shock guy I know to this day. I mean, he's brilliant. And so anyway, I was just talking to Jeff about the shocks we were running in the car. I didn't tell him anything about my third spring. I didn't want anybody to know. You know, we had covered <laughs> it up with blankets and everything when the nose came off and all of that. <clears throat> and Jeff says to me, he goes, hey, come back here in the back, you know, and all, all these PRI booths have like a little office in the back, you know, shut the door and they do their deals back there. So he said, let me show you something. So I went back in there, he closed the door, he popped open his briefcase and he handed me this shock reservoir that was beautifully machined. It looked like a work of art and he undid the cap of it and he opened it up and there was a piston and a spring in there. And I'm like, holy crap, he's, he just did what, you know, what I tried to do in my garage. And this thing mm-hmm. is beautiful. And I was kind of like, um, mm, yeah. He goes, what do you think? And I said, well, uh, I didn't know how to answer. You know, like, oh, this is brilliant or that'll never work. Or I don't uh, think this is useful at all. Right, right. <laughs> or and so I was hey, kind of exactly <laughs> right. So I was kind of hem- stuck, stammering around. And he goes, "Just a minute." And he reaches back into his briefcase, pulls out this stack of pictures, and it's like ten 
shots of my third spring, like spy <laughs> shots. Oh, no way, really? On our Ferrari, yeah. And he's and I'm like, okay, perfect. You know about it? And he and he's like, yeah, and I know about it. And I said, that's wild. I'm not leaving here without this in my hand. Put it in a bag, but I want this. This is ten times better mm-hmm. than the one I've designed. It's way better. You thought it out way better. And he's like, look here, take it. I want you to develop it for me. Let's you and I work on this. Let's try to develop this thing and make it really work. And so for the next year, year and a half, him and I worked on it. And it became, uh, after a year, by 96, there wasn't a Ferrari 333 SP running without a Penske hydraulic third spring unit on it. Uh, that is I took so wild. I ran them on our Indy cars. Um, and then uh, even on V8 supercars, we ran them on those. Um, it became really popular until basically every sanctioning body banned them. And it's kind of, it's kind of a bummer, but also like they, that's like as cool as it gets is to invent something, then Penske gets spy shots of it, then it gets on everything, and then everybody's like, this is too good. <laughs> Nobody can play with this toy. <laughs> Yep, yep, yep. And it was, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure. I'm sure Jeff came up with his idea about the same time I came up with mine, and he just did it way better than that's, I could do. That's and, so cool. That is so cool. And he had the resources. So, yeah, so that's the third, that's the uh, Penske hydraulic third spring. Um, Interesting. And now that nowadays everybody designs a car with a hydraulic or with a mechanical third spring. Uh, right. In, in it so we did um we actually put one of those on the uh, a mechanical third spring on the d sports racer that we built for level five also yeah um i i heard in the in in the dinner with racers episode a one second about inerter shocks and i went on a google about that and they seem like mm-hmm. sort of a thing in drag racing now um uh but uh there's not a lot of info about what an inerter shock is. Um, and I think you said you had those on the D sports racer. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah. So an inerter is another type of shock. It's like one of the, there's a second rod and it spins up a flywheel or something and magic happens. Yes. Right? <laughs> yeah. So the easiest way, the way I describe it to everybody and anybody who works with a nurse on a daily basis will be cringing right now, but this is the way I describe it. Remember, uh, depending on how old you are, the old tops, like toy tops that had a mm-hmm. plastic handle that you stuck down the center of it. And then that handle had like a, the, the rod of the handle was like a screw and you pulled it out and that spun the top. Yep. Okay. The shaft of the Absolutely. shock yep. is the handle. Inside the shock is a big tungsten weight that's like the top. So when that shock shaft goes in and out, it's turning this big tungsten flywheel not big, little, but heavy tungsten flywheel inside the shock. It's spinning that. So the shock now becomes sensitive to acceleration. Because a normal cons- shock. Conservation of momentum. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I get so it normal- now. I didn't think about that. <laughs> yep. 
So yeah, it takes that momentum makes, that makes more to accelerate sense, yeah. the shock now. A normal shock is sensitive to velocity. You have to have speed of the shaft to force oil through a hole to make a force. Right. Just like a spring is displacement sensitive. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how fast it's moving. It just matters how much it moved to, right. to determine what force it's giving back. A shock is velocity sensitive. At zero speed, it produces no force. So a shock's velocity sensitive. An inerter shock is acceleration sensitive. So you can control the accelerations. And when you're going over bumps, curbs, curb strikes, things like that, the acceleration is what you really want to control. And you're trying to do that with a normal shock on a velocity-sensitive device. So the inerter allows you to dampen the acceleration, not the velocity so much. And it's super interesting. It's, it's fantastic. It, it's, it's pure grip. Uh, the Indy cars, Indy cars are allowed to still use inerters, the current day Indy cars. And mm-hmm. that's why so much money is being spent. I've talked to my Indy car race engineer friends and the majority of their budget of their technical budget is spent on shock absorbers and the inerters. Oh my gosh. Much more than aero or engines or anything else. Cause all that's so highly regulated. The one area. Right in IndyCar where uh, IndyCar is said is open is shock absorbers. And so you'll see these technical alliances, you know, you'll see uh, a team like Shank IndyCar lined up with Andretti Autosport or a, um, you know, all the smaller teams have to have a technical alliance with Ganassi or Andretti or somebody and the reason is, is they need the shock absorber technology because you can't buy it. And without it, you're uncompetitive. Wow. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. It's, that, that, it's, and then you had those on a D-Sports racer or some form of them we, on a D-Sports racer? We tried them on the D-Sports racer. We didn't have time to really develop them. So we okay. dropped back to the current Formula One shock technology of the day. That dynamic drops back to Formula One technology. <laughs> back to Formula One technology. Yeah. Which which it is was, what? Explain how that works. It was a tiny. It, it, you know, you got to remember this is 2012, so we're talking 11 years now, and so right back in back that day, it was a very tiny little shock absorber. I mean, little. In Formula One, they were all about packaging at the time because you had to package it small for the aerodynamics of the cars. And so it was a tiny little five-way adjustable shock, you know, high-speed, low-speed bump, high-speed, low-speed rebound, and then a blow-off adjustment. So uh, and, hold on, I'm just tiny mm-hmm. is relative. Is it the size of a soda can, the size of a hot dog? Like a, motor, like a motorcycle shock size, or like what are we talking about? Yeah. yeah, smaller than that. Take your normal shock on a... Um, you know, on a current, on a Formula Ford or a sports racer or a, you know, LMP3 car. Um, like like a 10-inch shock kind of thing? Yeah, like a 10-inch shock on a, you know, inch and a half diamet- diameter. Yeah, yeah I went to Islet 10-inch shock, something like that. Yeah. 
10, 12 inch stock, take that and make it probably not 50%, but 60% short. It ran on a really, it ran on a 36 millimeter spring. Oh, oh, a little tiny little spring. Yeah. Um, and the shop they ran is F, they ran very F1 weird. cars and tiny stuff like that. Oh wow. yeah. Now they don't even run coil springs on F1 cars. No, I know. They just run. Yeah. So back then they were doing that really tiny little stuff for packaging. And so that's kind of what we ran. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was who, who built valve the shocks shock. for that? Was that Multimatic or? Yep. Dynamic. It was dynamic. Yeah. The, the, shock company of Multimatic and so, it was a spool valve shock not a it didn't have the normal um <clears throat> like uh metal discs that flexed in there it was a it was all and that's very common now most shocks now are spool valves you go most top level you know racing shocks are spool valve shocks but back then it was pretty pretty new so it was a it was kind of pretty high-tech advanced technology at the time now common mm-hmm. so uh jeff could you tell me a little bit about um how you start a conversation with a company like multimatic because when i think about when i think about a company <clears throat> like that or maybe pratt and miller these like iconic names in motorsports if if you've got this well this scca program and you're uh, this is a pet project for somebody. How do you how do you talk to a professional organization like that and make them interested in the project so that they jump in? Oh, this is a this is a good story. I've heard this story before. <laughs> okay, okay. So we had we had um, we were using Multimatic for our LMP two cars as a simulation partner. So they had a simulator driver in the loop simulator so for the people that don't know what that looks like it's it's picture an aircraft simulator like airplane pilots train in but it's for race cars so you put the driver in it it has a big screen you load in a fancy computer program that simulates the car and the racetracks and you drive around uh in this simulator and you see how fast you can go and then the engineers back in the back room change the wing setting and the driver drives around again and you see how fast you can go and you get data output from the simulator just like you did from a real car and so that's called the driver in the loop simulator multimatic had one of those and we contracted me as technical director at level five we wanted to get better at simulation with our lmp2 cars so i knew larry holt uh who runs Multimatic and I knew Peter Gibbons and the other guys at Multimatic just from being in this sport for all the, this length of time. And I, and we contracted with those guys to be our simulation partner. So they did the simulation work, wrote the software, and then we would come up there with our drivers and run in their driver in the loop simulator and test basically. So we already had those guys in place. So when Scott said, let's go try to win the D-Sports Racing runoffs, and we kind of grasped what that all meant, you know, like just buy a car and go see. And he was like, no, 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 let's make sure we win this thing. (laughs) Whatever it takes. (laughs) Right, right. And we're like, "Uh, okay, and what's the limits? And he said, the limits are make sure we win this thing. And, Mm -hmm. And there was also that, that carrot of the sub first sub two minute lap at Rota, 
America by an SECA car that had never been done. And the current D-Sports racer cars were bumping into that. Like they were like a second, second and a half off. So that was Yeah, it was like the fastest like, club class at the time. Yeah. 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 Yep. So we went to Multimatic, me, and said, hey, okay, we got this project. Are you guys interested? And they were like, heck yeah, we're interested. They were in the process of really developing simulation technology to develop cars, to build cars. Because in at the time, if you wanted to build a new car, what you did is your designer guys came up with the idea, they looked at the rule book and they came up, they drew the bodywork and they do the suspension. And then you said, yeah, that's okay. We think that's gonna be good. Then you built all of that out of metal and carbon fiber. You bolted it together. You went to the racetrack and you tried it. And then you're like, oh man, okay, that wing's not so good. So you throw that one away and build another one and try that. Multimatic with their simulation stuff at the time, and again, 11 years ago now, 12 years ago, they were cutting edge with this. They're like, you know, what we should do is design a car in software. We should design the simulated car. It's called a model. It's a computer model. It's just software code that describes the car. It describes where the suspension is, what the aerodynamics is, what the tire looks like, how the tire behaves, how the shocks behave, how everything behaves in the real world and you write a computer program that describes that model. No different than the model that like iRacing has. When you click on mm -hmm. iRacing and you're gonna go drive a spec Miata, that's, there's a model, there's a computer code that describes how a Miata handles. And that's yeah, but they wanna, they wanna build cars and drive them before they build the cars in real life. Exactly, that was yeah. their goal. So when we came to them at level five and said, hey, we wanna build this car, they were like, Perfect. Didn't the main guy think where, that you didn't send him the whole rule book because it was so short? Well, that was the when we got to the arrow part of it. There's this guy. Oh, okay, the arrow. Um, okay. <laughs> there's this guy, Mark Hanford, who was he's a brilliant aerodynamicist, Formula One guy. You know, hired by lots of Formula One teams to to design their their arrow stuff, do wind tunnel tests, and I mean, the mm -hmm. arrow guru. And he had done work with Multimatic. He might have been even under contract with Multimatic at the time. And the guys at Multimatic said to me, hey, they said, well, we should get Mark Hanford if we can get him involved, but I don't think he'll do it. And I said, well, I'll call Mark. And so I called Mark Hanford and I said, Mark, we got this program. Uh, it's a little SCCA car. Do you want to do it? And he's like, nah, no, I'm not, no, I'm not really interested. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's going to be too restrictive and stuff like that. And I said, well, I'll send you the rule book. Just take a look at it. So I sent him the rule book, all two pages that, uh, you know, it was basically like you run this engine and it has to weigh this much and yeah, anything else you want to do, you go ahead. It was pretty much the SCCA rule book. I sent him the rule book in email and he goes, hey, I got the rule book, but only two pages came through. Can you send me the rest? I said, that's it. And he goes, that's it? the arrow rules are like wide open. And I said, yeah, he goes, I'm in, you know, cause he was stoked because everything was so restrictive at the time. So he was like, wow, awesome. So he was really, really stoked about going and doing a project where the rules were yeah, open, cool. do whatever you wanted. So Multimatic, we, we did that. We developed the car in this, you know, we had, 
tons of different suspension designs, tons of different aero designs, tons of different engine designs. And we, but we didn't build any of it. We did them all in the simulation software. Then we brought my son Colin to Multimatic in Toronto. I went there and we spent three, four days, it seems like, maybe it was longer than that, on the simulator. And he would drive one setup and we would go, okay, good. Now let's put a whole new suspension on. And what that meant wasn't getting new wishbones or anything. That meant click on a computer, a couple key taps, boom, new suspensions on. Try that one. Oh yeah, that's better. That doesn't understeer as much. Okay, let's try this, try that, try this. We did three days and we came up with in the virtual world what we thought was the best package. Then we took the drawings from that and we, Multimatic, built the car and based off the simulation. Then we went to the track and we hardly touched that car. I mean, a little bit of ride height here, a little couple clicks of shock, and that was it. The car was like brilliant right off this off the simulator. Chassis wise, and, yeah. Yep. Yep. Engine. Did you do twelve arrow. days of testing on the car too? Oh, at least, at least, and that was mostly to try to make the engine last. That thing was a. So, yeah, you, you chose uh, you chose the small turbo variant of allowance instead of the basically it's like leader bikes and then like you could do you could turbo a 650 or 700 or something like that right yep yep that was a quirk in the rule book i don't know where it came from but we were like a one liter engine that's what everybody was running you know your gsxr 1000 bike motor yeah and we ran some of those and then uh we went well you know 670 turbo huh and so we built some of those, and suddenly we were making like a hundred more horsepower than we could out of the one liter bike. <laughs> were you know, still using? We were, uh, you were still using like bike engines slash trans. You weren't like divorcing those and using different trannies or anything, and welding up custom no, stuff or anything, were you? No, we started with the GSXR one thousand, and we stroked it down to six seventy, and yeah, you did a turbo. Down, on it. Huh? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so, so, we, so still bike trans and all that stuff though. No. Well, yeah, the transmission started breaking because it was way too much horsepower. I so, would imagine. Yeah. And, and also pushing, you know, not a lot of weight, but like still more than a bike. Yeah. Right. Right. So we had, uh, we had a good relationship with extract, the, the guys who make all the sports car and indie car gearboxes and they built us some beefier gears. We just, you know, sent them the stock Suzuki gears and said, you know, do what you do, and they sent them, sent us back gears, and we never had any more problems. Good grief. Just so, call up X-Track we were, we were, and have them build you a custom trans. Right, yeah. right. Well, I mean, like, And for reference, that's not like, like, that's not cheap to buy an X-Track. Like, a brand new X-Track for anything is like, uh, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a house worth of money. Right. <laughs> Right, right. They just did yeah. custom gears for us, and that was crazy. That was we put uh, we put paddle shift on it, so we had those. We had the paddle shift guys, um, you know, the 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 guys who did the whole uh, actuator systems and everything come out with. We brought yeah, like flat shifter, flat shifter, or one of those brands like that. Yeah. Well, yeah, it was um, it was. Uh, I mean, escapes me right now. It's the same guys everybody uses currently. 
Um, yeah, my, my to, buddy's building, uh, he's rebuilding a Legrand for autocross. Uh, he's been on the show before and he, I forget okay. what brand he just put on his, but yeah, there's, there's a couple of companies that make basically yep. paddle shifters for bike trainees to put into tiny cars. I have to imagine yep. that as you make these calls to, you know, the, the vendors, your, your partners, and you explain the need and you're like, Hey, can you do this for me? I have to imagine that there's a technical person on the other end, just chuckling because they can imagine what this car is going to be even before it's finished. Right. Everybody wanted to be involved <laughs> because it was so cool and so different. You know, we're dealing with spec cars and highly homologated and restricted cars and, and, you know, and, and there was never a time where these guys could just go crazy. You know, they, you know, they would, you know, extract would say, okay, well, what's the, you know, what's the rule requirements? Well, like, there are none. It's just got to fit in the stock Suzuki transmission case. Really? Okay. Uh, you know, and they just went nuts. The same with the shock, with dynamic, with the shocks, the same with the, the shifting guys, you know, it was just whatever, uh, the brake guys, PFC, built special carbon rotors so we could run and pads so we could run carbon brakes on the car on a little D-Sports racer. And they they were like, wow, this is so cool. We get to do something new. We're not just making, you know, brakes for somebody's whatever, street Porsche or whatever. So, yeah, special brakes. And it was it was a fun project. And I think a lot of these companies – probably learned some things that helped them. I'll, I'll finish the story on the whole design the car in the simulator and then build it. We did that at, at Multimatic and that actually was the roadmap and the beginning process and procedure for the Ford GT. The next car they <laughs> built was the Ford GT LM car and they used the exact same process because they had kind of refined that process and proven. It was like a proof of concept that that could work. Yeah. And the Ford GT was designed exactly the same way, fully in the simulator, and then they went and built it. Well, and largely like in club racing, like or really in any kind of racing nowadays, and even like for the probably the 20 years prior, there wasn't a class like that because – there just wasn't. There wasn't a class with a two-page rule book, and there probably never will be again. You know, because racers are barbarians. Right. Yeah, because racers are right. barbarians, and they spend all the money and make everything crazy. It's hard. So. Right. Well, when we did that, there was it was interesting. There was the the D and C Sports Racer class at the time, and I think it's still a little that way, but it's a little more restricted now. Yeah, they now were it's like P one and P two, basically. Yeah. Yeah, and and I was involved in one of the cars this year, one of the P two cars that uh, that actually won the runoffs in P two with John Guyon driving, and and I mean, Greg, sorry, and his father John, and it seems more restricted now. It, you know, they're oh, yeah. they're stores yeah. with bike motors. That's kind of the standard, and then the bigger class is uh, a DPO two, like an old IMSA lights car, basically. So, but at the time, it was pretty much unrestricted, and it was what, you know, it's what everybody loved about it. So there was these, I call them the mad scientist guys, you know, the guys that raced SCCA, 
and I always pictured these guys, you know, working on their car, coming up with their new thing, designing their new thing because the rules would allow it. Oh, yeah. And then they get to the track and they're like, oh, man, somebody has to drive it. Well, they drove it. But, but the big kick they got out of it was making the car newer and better and faster and trying all this crazy oh, stuff. Yep. So when we went to the runoffs and we showed up with this thing, there was we weren't sure what the reception was going to be. I would say 90% of the field thought it was the coolest thing ever. They're like, yeah, we're going to get our ass kicked really bad here this year, but this is so <laughs> we'll cool. Be by that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. This is, this yeah. is amazing. This is awesome. We can't believe, you know, there were a few guys like, Oh, this is terrible. It's going to ruin the class. And the other guys are like, it's not going to ruin the class. Nobody else can afford this. This is a one and done. It's gone. We're never racing against this thing again. Don't worry about it. So as like, yeah. as you show up at the runoffs at Road America and you kind of get settled in, uh, what is, you know, what, what's the vibe from the officials at SCCA about the team? Or were they like, were they aware that this was going to happen? Uh, there was enough. There was enough. I don't know. Uh, you know, we had tested so much at Road America that people had started hearing about it and, yeah. and there were people, and you probably, uh, you probably had to buy all the paddock space cause you had a good paddock spot and they were charging for that at that time. So they knew you were coming with the rig. <laughs> so. They, they, they knew we were coming and you know, we were, yeah. we testing a lot of time. You think we did six, like six, two day tests, I think. And insane. And we had, you know, we rented the track kind of exclusive, well, not kind of, actually exclusively. So it was just us. And, um, but there were people, it was getting out that what was happening. And then there was some uh, websites or blogs, I guess, back at the, at the time they were, they were, because there really wasn't social media. There wasn't Instagram and Twitter at the time. So there was these, you know, blogs and guys were like, yeah, I heard they ran this fast. And I'm going to, they're supposed to be back tomorrow. I'm going to drive off from Chicago and just uh, stand outside uh-huh. the fence and time them yeah. and stuff. So there was a lot of that going on. Yeah, there was chatter yeah. on on the forum that I was on, which still am. Um, and I remember there being chatter because I had a couple some friends that were in the area, and they're like, "This is a really fast car coming. It's one of the prototypes, one of the sports racers, or whatever." I remember that chatter specifically. That was right mm-hmm. the time I was getting into SCCA too. I hadn't done my first club race yet, but I was assisting a couple dudes, so I was like right. deep into SCCA land that year. And I specifically remember like the chatter on the forums about it. Like there's a crazy yep. car coming. So, yeah. 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 And there like were six days of, of testing rentals. Got to be like 120 grand just in testing rental. <laughs> like what the heck? Yeah. yeah. It was expensive. It was expensive. Yeah. And we, we did a lot of testing and Colin was the only guy testing it. Scott only came and drove it for like five laps before the runoffs. That's he wow. he drove the thing. Yeah. It was, yeah. it was Colin doing all the driving and it was, you know, yeah, it wasn't, we had lots of engine failures. We had, you know, we had suspension failure a little bit because the loads were higher than we thought. Um, you know, it was, it was, uh, we had the LMP two car and it was faster than our LMP two car <laughs> lap time. So, you know, it was 180 miles an hour into Canada corner and into turn one. Um, it was flat. If people know Road America, it was flat from the exit of turn 
eight right before the carousel exited turn eight mm-hmm. all the way to canada corner so That's flat through the carousel wild. flat through the kink it was the min speed in the kink was 165 miles an hour yeah and, and i just kink. found your video from years ago oh yeah before, yep. before this because i like i remember there being a video and you can see it on the dash how fast you're going and it's like 163 164 165 and then it's like oh my mm-hmm. gosh <laughs> And that uh, was not the that was not the best lap. There's a lap. That, yeah, uh, I had heard. I don't know why that there was a better video, but it might not be on the internet. I I would love to see it someday, dude. It's there so, is a better it's video. So gnarly. Yeah, I mean we, we Colin ran some 150 high 151s, low 152s with that car. Yes, yeah, so and that would have put him. That year, that would have put him second on the ALMS grid between the Muscle Milk LMP1 and the Dyson LMP1. <laughs> and ahead of all the LMP2 cars. Right. Yeah. yeah. What's an IndyCar yeah, run was, there? I, I'm not actually super familiar. I think they're in the 45s now. 145. Not that, not that slow compared to, or you're no. not that slow compared to an IndyCar. Yeah. No. No. They may be quicker now, but it was... I mean, the goal is to get under two minutes, and oh, you know, did Scott it. had to do that. He had to drive it, so Scott actually did get, might have, and he had to do it in the race. So I think Scott might have done a fifty-eight to eight or something like that in the race. So, yeah. um, but well, it was it was in a car test. that's that insane. Being able to do that with what like five or six laps behind the wheel prior to the race—that itself is kind of a crazy accomplishment. Yeah. Right. I mean, like I said before, Scott was Scott was really good. He came, he flew in. Well, one of the last days we were testing, we kind of had it sorted. But the engine, I think we had only made one 13-lap run on an engine without a failure. And the runoffs were 13 laps. So we were very nervous that, you know, that we could make it. And Scott flew in. He drove it four or five laps. And he got out. He goes, "Yeah, that's things way too scary. That's good. I'm done." Got back on his airplane and flew home. And then we detuned it a little bit. Uh, you know, we could make like 340 horsepower out of that engine, out of a 670 cc's. And so for the runoffs, we detuned it a little bit down to like 300, just to give us that reliability. Right. Wow. So insane. So, it was crazy. No. It was crazy. A lot of a lot of fun times and. Uh, but again, going back to the start, is Scott never looked at it as, I mean, he, he wanted to win the runoffs. Uh, one time he, we were sitting at Lamar, that's the kind of guy he was. We were sitting at Lamar on the Friday before the race across the racetrack looking into the garage and everybody's working on the LMP2 car and we're about ready to do the 24 hours of Lamar. Guys are <laughs> skirting around, engines are coming out and stuff like that. And he looks at me, we're just kind of sitting in the, on the wall looking into the garage across the pit lane. And he goes, you know, Jeff, he said, all I ever wanted to do in my racing career was win the Ferrari Challenge Championship. And what am I doing? And I said, you're at Le Mans, about to try to win the 24 hours of Le Mans. Because, yeah, he said, this got away from me. He said, I, I would have been ha- I would have been happy with a Ferrari Challenge Championship or a runoffs championship. This, is, <laughs> this got this away is, from me. This got away from me. <laughs> Yeah, no shit, man. Holy cow. So, 
Yeah. You worked with some times. crazy people. That's a, uh, that's a wild, yep. that's a wild one. But, yeah. I'm, um, I'm very fortunate. Very fortunate. Yeah. Well, I feel like we've taken your whole night from you. Um, we should probably let you have your night back unless you want to talk about ancient NASCAR stuff, but uh, we can, we can also do that another time. So. Let's do, let's do that another time. Let's talk about uh, NASCAR ASA, Alan Kowicki. Those are fun times too. If anybody, I, I need to that. research that stuff. I'm not super up on, uh, up on that era. I, I would love to. So. But, yeah, good because you yeah, can you, remind me of what happened because it's been a while. <laughs> your your story of uh, of of the ride height check at whatever track that was in Canada um, years ago mm-hmm. that one still makes me giggle. So Cayuga, Cayuga, yeah. yep, yep, race it against some. Pretty, and you, yeah, those are you put little blocks of wood in there, and then the car would go left and right, and the blocks would fall out, and the car would settle down to the ground, and and you passed ride height check, right? <laughs> Yep, pretty fast ride height check, and we thought we were brilliant until we walked out of the racetrack at the end of that night, and we looked down, me and Alan, and we looked down, and there was like twenty of those blocks sitting there. So like, <laughs> <laughs> we realized everybody was doing that. We thought we were yeah. just super cool, and then everybody was doing the same thing. <laughs> we weren't that cool. Yeah. We weren't that good. That's that's such a good story. If anybody hasn't heard that one. Uh, forward back about three years in time and look for that one. It's a good one. So anyway, yeah. we should probably let yeah. you go and uh, we really appreciate your All time right. tonight, man. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. It's always fun. We need to do it more often. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll tell stories. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to do it. I'm going to hold you to it yeah. because these are yeah, when, super uh, fun. Especially when you started doing them once in a while with with Ross Bentley, I'm like, I gotta bother Jeff some more, and I always felt bad. But then uh, you always seem so eager to do it when we do it, so maybe I don't feel so bad anymore. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's 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 no uh, problem. It's the same thing we're doing with Ross on the no dumb questions thing. It's you know we just yeah, you guys do like great the three job. Of us just, so. Oh, thank you, thank you. It's like the three of us just sat here and talked about racing for a while, and it's kind of the same thing mm-hmm. Ross and I do. So it's easy. Yeah, it's it's the it's best. So. I, I appreciate you awesome. having. Me. Thanks for yep. having me. Well, have a gr- have a great night. Thank you so much, sir. So. Sounds great. We'll talk to you guys soon. Um, yeah, just stay in touch. We'll do it again. Yeah, maybe we'll bother you after uh, Rolex. Yeah, do that. Do that. Be great. Thanks Perfect. everybody for listening. Yep. Thank you, everybody. Slip Angle was created by Austin Cabot and Adam Jubay, co-hosted by Derek Yarbrough and production by Abram Schmucker, who mixes all of our terrible audio. If you like the show, please rate us and review us on iTunes and come and find us in the Pits at Grid Live to say hello. Hello.